If you have a Bible, and I hope that you do, please turn with me to Luke chapter 20 this morning. Luke chapter 20. One of the perennial discussions that goes on in pulpits and in pews as well as in university classrooms concerns the relationship between church and state, more specifically between Christianity and the United States of America, just how Christian was our founding, not just the individuals, but in the documents that they produce that still govern us to this day. What is the relationship, the extent of the Christian faith to civil government? Perhaps more specifically, we ought to think of ourselves, as we think of ourselves as Christians, we ought to be asking individually and corporately, how do we relate to civil government? To be honest, many of these questions were not, at least for myself, much in my thinking until I got into college. And in the, uh, the first year and a half to two years, um, I was enjoying just being a student. And so what that meant was when the uh, computer system auto-generated a, a suggested schedule based upon my, my major and my declared uh, minors, um, if it looked interesting... I would sign up for those classes. If it didn't, I would throw it in the garbage, not think anything about it, and just take classes that looked interesting to me. About halfway through my college, I realized I'm not going to graduate if I keep doing that. Uh, I, I can't just be a, a, a student. I have to be focused. And I wound up at the beginning of my second year at this 400-level church history course because it sounded interesting. And, um, and what I didn't realize was this was something really only a senior history major should be taking. So I had to work my tail off, and frankly, I'm proud of the B- minus I came out with. But it was there that um, I heard something I had never encountered before, and that was an argument from Scripture that the American Revolution was wrong, that Christians should not have rebelled against the king, should not have been forward in the revolt based upon God's commands towards good citizenship. I had never heard that before in my life. And so I immediately went out and got the article that this professor had written and, and read through that and began to think seriously and critically, not just about uh, what I had heard growing up or what was assumed growing up. The revolution was a wonderful thing. Tax exit without representation was evil, and we were right to rebel. No, what did the scriptures actually say about such a thing? Well, regardless of, of our understanding of our founding, the question is more imperative for today. How do we as Christians relate to civil authority? We've been making our way through Luke's gospel over uh, the last many, many months. And as we arrive now, right towards the middle of the final week of Jesus' life before he goes to the cross, we find him being pelted with questions now as people seek to arrest him and have him um, really ultimately put to death. And one of the questions that that comes to him involves this very perennial question, and that is, how are God's people meant to relate to civil government? Let's see what Jesus says as we begin reading at verse 19 of Luke chapter 20. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on Jesus at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the word of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he, that is Jesus, perceived their craftiness. 
and said to them, show me a denarius whose likeness an inscription doesn't have. They said, Caesar's. He said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. As we think through what Jesus says here, I think that what we will, we will come away with is a better idea of what it means to live as citizens of Caesar and at the same time servants of Christ. We will understand the, the, the obligations that we have towards both levels of authority in our life. And yet I also think it's important that we understand the larger context in which Jesus is giving that teaching. Because really what we have this in some way are, are two sermons. One is about how to perceive and avoid temptation, and the other is how to rightly apply truth in the midst of temptation that we might escape it. And here that specific right application involves being citizens of Caesar and servants of Christ. So the first thing that we want to see in Jesus teaching an example here is the, the larger context, specifically the satanic strategy of attack that these people have against him, the satanic strategy of attack. The scribes and the chief priests are seeking to get Jesus. And if we've read the Bible before, we, we know this. But we think about the larger context behind this happening. Let's, let, let's pull back and think on, on kind of a, a whole Bible level, level for a minute. In verse 23, Jesus identifies these people as being crafty. Now, if you've read the Bible before, what is the, the one prominent place where someone is described as being crafty? Well, it should not take very long before we realize that's Genesis 3. Right after God's good creation, we are told that Satan in the guise of the serpent was more crafty than any other creature that God had made. I don't think it's a coincidence that Luke is using that word that he does here. See, these men should not just be thought of as those coming to Jesus and lacking understanding of who he is and what he is about. These are false shepherds of Israel. As Jesus himself has identified them week after week after week that we have seen recently. These men are unbelievers, though they think they are believers. They understand themselves to be saved by God's grace when in fact they are condemned for their sins. So as they try to come after Jesus, they are coming as agents of Satan himself. God promised in Genesis 3 that the seed of the woman would crush his head, and Satan has been trying to destroy that seed first. And this is why Cain kills Abel. This is why the Philistines attack Israel. This is why Saul sought David's life. Why the wicked kings killed the prophets. Why the crowd tried to cast off Jesus over the cliff until he made his way of escape at the outset of his ministry. All through this is a pattern of violence of Satan working to destroy the godly line, the seed that's going to produce an ultimate seed, namely Christ who will triumph fully over them. And so I think that Luke is drawing that association to himself. But even, even if you say, well, isn't that stretching a little bit? Well, just consider this, that more, than just the, more than just this pattern that runs throughout Scripture that I think Luke is alluding to, think about the tactics they use and how they follow after Satan's own tactics in attacking God's people. Everything that Satan did in the garden, you understand, he still does today. 
He still does today. If we're going to be aware of his schemes, as Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 2, then we need to think carefully about how these men attack Jesus, how that reflects Satan's attack on Adam and Eve, and how he still employs those means today. And specifically, we see that he, first of all, uses deceptive means of attack. Deceptive means of attack. Remember that just before this, Jesus had told a parable about wicked tenants working for a master on his vineyard, and yet they disrespected that master. They disrespected the vineyard owner. So that when he sent his servants to collect the fruit, they would harass them and beat them and throw them back out of the vineyard. And he did this multiple times until finally he sent his son. And instead of of just beating him and throwing him out, they killed the son, thinking they would receive the inheritance of the vineyard for themselves. And of course, Jesus makes clear that was a parable between God and Israel. For these very leaders all throughout Israel's history who have actually been against God rather than for him. And now the height of their arrogance, the height of their rebellion is that they are going to kill God's own son, namely Jesus. And so Luke says that the religious leaders rightly perceived that he had told this parable against them in verse 19. They wanted to do something, but notice they feared the people. What does that mean? They wanted to be popular. They wanted to be well-liked, well-respected, to have a name for themselves in the community. Therefore, they could not act on their desire. So what could they do? Well, they resorted to deception and treachery. And so verse 20 says that they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said. So these leaders were too scared to make their intentions known. Therefore, they tried to deceive Jesus. They tried to get in close to him. They tried to get in good with him and listen closely and catch him saying something that would help turn the people against them. Now, in some ways, this is not surprising to us just even in secular life. This is how politics runs all the time. Someone is sent in with an iPhone or a hidden tape recorder wanting to catch some politician saying something off the cuff, unaware he's being recorded, that his reputation might be damaged before everyone else. Likewise, that is exactly what these people are doing. They are deceiving, or at least attempting to deceive Jesus that they might catch him up. But secondly, notice that these enemies of Christ also attack him by distorting truth. By distorting truth. Notice how they word the question in verse 21. Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Now, first of all, they they don't believe Jesus teaches rightly. I mean, it's an out-and-out lie. Uh, They are, again, trying to to butter him up, get into his good graces. Otherwise, they wouldn't be trying to trap him. Uh, They think he's a troublemaker. They think he's a threat to them and their way of life, and they resent that he has identified them as sinners. But secondly, notice they make their appeal to God's word in a twisted way. Is it lawful, they ask? They are trying to pit Jesus against the law of Moses. In other words, they're trying to use the law, God's word, uh, the truthfulness of it as a wedge between this leader and the people. So rather than seeking to illuminate the truth, to drive it into the minds and the hearts of the people of God, to positively instruct them, they distort God's word in its proper use. They not only are using the truth in a twisted way, but they're using it as a weapon. Especially in this context where culturally that was a loaded question. Because on the minds of every single Jew was the reality of the political occupation of Israel by Rome. 
They were not a free people as they had once been in their history. They had overlords. They had people there telling them, you can have freedom but only within these bounds and then you must be loyal to Rome. You must be royal to Caesar. And so within Israel itself at that time, there was a range of ideas. One from saying, uh, basically, um, we need to, like the French, we need to put up a, a Vichy government. We just put up this Jewish government that just basically coordinates with Rome and does whatever they want. We just acquiesce so that way they don't bring the hammer down and destroy us. And on the other end, you had resistance fighters. You had guys called the Zealots, and they believed it was dishonoring to God that they would ever acknowledge the authority of Caesar in their life. Therefore, they gathered arms and raised up armies and did all kinds of, uh, of nighttime attacks and raids and tried to lead the people into revolt against Rome. And so you've got this tension. You've got this heated debate going on in the midst of Israel at this day. And, and they are essentially lighting the match and holding it over the fuel of those questions at the time. We were to think of some kind of analogy perhaps in our own day, think about maybe even today, but certainly in previous days, walking into a room full of people and asked to comment on Ferguson, knowing that it is an emotionally, politically charged situation that whatever you say, someone or maybe many someones will be unhappy with your answer. So the scribes and the chief priests are cunning in their question. Tell us, Jesus, what is lawful? What honors God? Should we be paying tribute to Caesar or should we be trying to rebel against him? Is it right to rebel against the authority of the occupying Romans or should we accommodate ourselves to them? Now, of course, in asking these things, they don't really care what he thinks. They're not really looking for the answer. They're trying to trap him and thus they are asking with a destructive purpose. That's the last thing we see about this a spiritual attack on Jesus. It has a destructive purpose. Notice again their ultimate intent in verses 19 and 20. Scribes and the, and the chief priests sought to lay hands on Jesus at that very hour so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So we understand that the conflict here between Jesus and these religious leaders is not some minor disagreement. It's not just some small interpretation of the law that doesn't matter, that fits within the larger scope of, of Judaism. It's not about that at all. It's about life and death. It's about Jesus coming in and being someone that they don't want him to be, claiming to, to be something that, that they don't think he is, him being a threat to how they believe and how they live and what their position is in society. So they are desperate to find any reason to be able to put hands on him to basically do a citizen's arrest and bring him before the proper authorities. In this case, an authority that we will see in just a few days, at least in terms of Jesus' life, several weeks in terms of the preaching schedule, namely Pontius Pilate. Again, if they get him to say something against Caesar to denounce him or his authority in some way, it is cause for immediate arrest. Insurrection was a serious crime in Israel. In fact, it was punishable by crucifixion. So this is the attack that Jesus undergoes. This is the, this is the, the setup for this teaching that's about to come. It is, it is these leaders seeking to tempt him into doing something that would lead to his death. Now, clearly a specific historical event, and yet there are commonalities between this and every every spiritual attack that God's people have ever encountered and will continue to encounter until Jesus returns. One of Satan's titles is the deceiver. 
Even today, he does often not present temptation or spiritual attacks as a full frontal assault. That's kind of his last resort. Instead, he uses deception to catch you off guard and unprepared. He will use those that are closest to you sometimes to tempt you and attack you. More than that, he will often distort the truth of God's word in his attacks. After all, the best lies are based on partial truths. So you think about today, especially the false teachers that are around, those that are on television especially. You can flip through any, any given time and listen and hear lots of right things, lots of true things from the Bible. The problem is that little bit of truth comes with a large amount of falsehood, a distorted and damning gospel that is false and will lead you directly to hell, which is the ultimate destructive end that Satan has for all of us. Not because he hates us so much, but because he hates the Lord Jesus Christ. And those who trust in him to be their savior, they exalt him and show him to be the worthy son of God that he is, the place that Satan himself would like to occupy. Therefore, his goal is always that of devouring God's people if he can, tempting us to deny the faith and suffer the same fate that he will forever in hell. So that's the spiritual attack, the satanic strategy of attack that came across Jesus. How does he respond? How how does he endure this attack? Well, we see this in verses 23 through 26. And here we see the righteous response of wisdom. The righteous response of wisdom. Jesus is not about ducking questions. More importantly, he does not fall into the folly of their attack. Instead, he displays himself to be inherently wise. He is wisdom in the flesh here. He not only confronts the attack, but perseveres in godliness. So how does he do that? Well, to begin with, he displays an awareness of trouble. An awareness of trouble. In verse 23, Luke says that though the scribes and the high priests were trying to trap him, Jesus perceived their craftiness. That is, Jesus wisely discerned the motivations of these men and were wary of them. Now, how are we to understand this? I know often throughout the Gospels, we have seen Jesus knowing things that seemingly you and I would not be able to know. Right? We think of the woman at the well when he says, uh, he engaged her in conversations, go get your husband. And she says, well, I don't have any. And she says, you're right. You've had lots of husbands. The man you're living with now is not your husband. Now, I don't know about you, but I typically don't go around with that kind of knowledge popping into my head about people. Okay? And so we see that very often there's something miraculous going on. We know that at the outset of Jesus' ministry, the Spirit of God empowered him, came upon him in full measure for ministry. And so God's Spirit would often reveal things to Jesus, even the intentions of the hearts of men. But I don't think that's the case here. I think there's something far less supernatural going on because of the language that, that, that Luke uses. And I don't want to be uh, too specific about it. I don't want to be too dogmatic about it. But I think that the idea of him perceiving craftiness, it sounds a lot like wisdom literature. It sounds a lot like Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. And I think that what we're to understand Jesus is, just as he commanded his disciples to be, he is as gentle as a dove, but wise as a servant. And I say this because I think that the book of Proverbs and other, other sources as well, but specifically there, is such a collection of insight into the human mind and heart into the motivations of people and the consequences of that, is that if we will make it our ambition to study that kind of literature, then I think that we will actually gain insight into 
the, the, the machinations, the strategies, the devices of Satan to come against us, even using other people. We will be able to see more clearly when we are being led into a spiritual trap, a temptation that we do not want to be able to be a part of. And so as we alluded to earlier in 2 Corinthians 2.11, Paul says he wants us to be aware. In fact, he says that we are aware of Satan's ways in tempting and attacking God's people. And he wants the Corinthians not to be outwitted by him or to be ignorant of his designs. Likewise, I think we ought to work at being aware of Satan's designs, his schemes and strategies knowing the weaknesses of our own minds and hearts that they might be prone to certain temptations. Here's the thing. Satan is clever. Satan is crafty, but he's frankly not very imaginative. He uses the same tactics over and over and over and over again. Get on a Bible reading plan that organizes the books chronologically and just skim through looking for people who sin and how they were tempted. And you'll see the same things over and over and over again. Just as he tempted Adam and Eve in the garden, so he tempts Jesus in the wilderness, so he tempts us today. Jesus here is able to display his wisdom to succeed because he is aware of the trouble facing him. But really, the, the, the heart of what we want to look at today is that in the moment of attack, he's able to make a right application of truth. He's able to make a right application of truth. Again, do you remember how we saw back at the beginning, towards the beginning anyway, of Luke's gospel and Jesus in the wilderness right at the beginning of that ministry context? And, you know, you can almost imagine a, a, a fencing contest, a, a sword duel of some kind, and, and you can envision every, every thrust of Satan was a simple parry of Christ defending himself. How? With, with the powerful words of Scripture. So Satan would, would, would launch a temptation that would strike directly at Jesus, something unique to his ministry as the Son of God incarnate, as the coming Messiah. And each time, Jesus would, would just quote back to Satan God's own words, powerful words. Unlike the false teachers, Jesus did not use Scripture as a weapon of confusion, but of clarity. He knows the truth well, and he is able to apply it to the situation. Really, for us, that is the key to any success in overcoming temptation. To know the word well, to be able to know how, well, what it means and how it applies in our situation, that we might yield it and wield it against temptation. So, so what exactly does he say? How does he reply to this charged question of Caesar's authority? Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Well, I think more than just thinking about Jesus' context again, this is vital for us because in so many ways, we are exactly like Israel in this context, in his day, but for us in the present. Though Christ is our king, there is a Caesar who rules over us. There is a government that has authority over us. So how are we to respond to Caesar how are we to respond to secular civil authority? How should we live in the midst of an unbelieving nation? Well, Jesus gives us two broad instructions that I want us to think through and apply this morning. First, he tells us that we ought to respect rightful authority. We ought to respect rightful authority. They ask him this question and Jesus responds by saying, show me a denarius, a, a, a certain kind of coinage. That, that was imprinted with Caesar's face and an inscription of his name and the fact that he was the son of divine Caesar. 
show me a denarius. And so you can imagine, they pull out their money belt, they hand it to him, and he holds it up, and he says, whose likeness and inscription does it have? They say, Caesar's. And so he says to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Now, Jesus assumes by his answer that there are some things that rightfully belong to Caesar. Think about that. He assumes that there are some things that rightfully belong to Caesar. Why does he do that? Because Scripture is clear. The idea of government, even secular government, is inherently a good thing. It is a good institution created by God himself. And so Paul, one of Jesus' apostles, will say this in Romans chapter 13. He says, there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Roman Empire instituted by God. Doesn't mean it's perfect, doesn't even mean it's righteous, but it is an authority instituted by God. The government of the United States of America, an authority instituted by God. So it doesn't matter if our political party is in power or if we have godly leadership in office, anarchy and rebellion are not acceptable solutions to our problems. Why? Because human government has been ordained by God. Even bad government serves his purposes and restrains evil. But how do we actually respect rightful authority? What does that look like practically? If we were to go out today and want to do this, what would we do? Well, there's lots of things, but I think just broadly speaking, there are three specific things that we can see clearly in Scripture. First of all, we should pray for authority. We should pray for authority. This is actually commanded in 1 Timothy 2. Paul says, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and for all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. So what is he telling us to do? Pray for secular authority. Pray for civil government. So today, tomorrow, this week, pray for your mayor. Pray for the sheriff. Pray for Congress. Pray for our judges. Pray for our president. Pray for their well-being, their, their health, their safety. Pray they would have wisdom to lead and govern well. Pray that they would maintain order that we might live peaceably in a way that the gospel goes forward. If you are in a context where the country is in upheaval and there's all kinds of problems, guess what? You, you're not very free to go where you want and talk about the gospel like you want. And Paul says there is something intrinsically valuable to the church about a stable, civilized government. It allows Christ to be declared. Secondly, we should submit to authority. We should submit to authority. Again, in Romans 13, we read, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. Paul says, not just judgment from God, but judgment from the government. You go on and read down to verse 8, and he says, they, have, they do not wield the sword in vain. In other words, if you're going to fight against the government, you're going to get the chop. That's how government works. And so that's why we are to be subject to them. We ought to submit to them. In other words, we ought to be just good citizens. I think that's what Paul was saying there. Of all the people in any country, in any place, Christians ought to be known for being good citizens. So do we have taxes to pay? Then we pay them. We pay them. In some ways, that's the focus of the question here. Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? And what does Jesus say? Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. 
Does he have an army that provides safety for you from bad guys coming in across the Roman Empire? Does he provide roads for you? Does he provide stability? Then you pay taxes so that he can do those things. Jesus paid taxes, and so should we. But it goes beyond just that. It goes just beyond taxes. Are there laws that govern our behavior? Yes. Then we should obey those laws. Are there limits to our freedom that serve the common good? Yes. And we should joyfully accept those freedoms being limited for the sake of the common good. Again, of all the people in this country, in any country, God's people should be known as those who seek to live peaceably among all peoples, not as troublemakers, not as rebels. Now, don't miss the impact of this because we are prone. We, not just you, we, I, we are prone to grumble about our country. We are prone to dislike our leadership. We are prone to think that we're living in a bad time. Jesus is standing in the midst of the Roman Empire saying this. One of, one of the cruelest empires to have ever existed. An empire that would go on to slaughter his people. To do defiling things like, like drop them down and stick them on pikes, pour tar on them and light them at fire for dinner parties. And what does he say? Render under Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And so Peter, the Lord Jesus apostle, the first among equals, would go on in his letter to say, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Live as people who are free, but not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. If God's people can submit and survive and even thrive in Rome, how much more us today in the United States of America, a country that even today has more guaranteed freedoms than any other country in the world, has has more across-the-board prosperity than any other country in the world, who has more security and stability than any other country in the world. We, We should pray, we submit, and then finally, we should engage with authority. We should engage with authority. As Christians, we are not limited in our interactions with government. In other words, we don't say, well, we're the church and that's the government and never the twain shall meet. We, we don't do anything. We stay out of it. That's just politics. No, 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 no. That's not the vision of life that is presented in the New Testament. You have a, you have a centurion. So here's a guy that is a Roman soldier in charge of 100 other Roman soldiers. He's an officer and he gets saved. Peter does not say, well, you can get out of it. No more military for you. That's not even a, that's not even a thought. When the centurions come to John the Baptist, the Roman soldiers, um, and say, be baptized, what do we do? And what does he say? He says, treat everybody justly. Do your job well. Don't harass people unwisely. He doesn't say stop, stop being involved in government. When, 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 when Jesus heals a centurion's daughter, he doesn't say, I healed your daughter, I've forgiven you of sin, now get out of the military. He doesn't do that. Uh, likewise, when, when, when Paul is seeking to, to send the gospel everywhere, and he has unlawfully clapped in irons and put on the rack and getting ready to get the lash. He very, um, somewhat craftily, not in a bad way, but in a good way, he looks and says, are you supposed to do this to a Roman citizen? And the guy goes, what? No, you can't do this to a Roman citizen. You can be punished yourself and whipped twice as much if you unlawfully whip a Roman citizen without trial and conviction. And he says, what are you talking about? He says, I'm a Roman citizen. He's like, well, get, get out of there. And he unbuckles him up and he goes and, gets, he goes and gets the guy that sent him here. And he says, did you know this guy was a Roman citizen when you sent him here? And he goes, no. And he runs in and he looks at Paul and he says, I bought my Roman citizenship for a large sum of money. What about you? And Paul says, I was born a citizen. 
And they want to just shut him up. He goes, no, I want to appeal. And he appeals and he appeals and he appeals. Why? He gets to share the gospel at Caesar's household. What did he do? He used the legal system for a godly advantage. So my point is to say, we don't disengage, okay? For all the things that I love about them, we are not Amish. We don't just say, ah, oh, that's the world. We don't want anything to do with it. No, no, no. We, we engage in the world. You think about men like William Wilberforce. I don't know who he is. Google him. Go, go, go rent uh, the movie Amazing Grace that, that came out. The main actor is Welsh, and he has a very Welsh name, and so you're not going to know how to spell it. Just Google William Wilberforce Amazing Grace movie. It'll come up. He, he has this vision. He's a Christian, and he has this vision of, of the dignity of all people and, and, and the, the worth of Christ justifying sinful men by faith. But he works tirelessly almost his whole life in politics to end the British slave trade. And, and, and what happens? Because it ends in Britain, then British gunboats are able to end it in the Middle East and across Africa who enslaved their own people. How did it start? One man with a vision to be a godly government servant. And so we engage with the authority. We don't just let them hang out there. For, for most of us, we're not going to have elected positions, but we can vote. And far too many times, Christians just give that privilege away. They say, well, it doesn't really matter. I don't have time. I can't do this. It is an immense privilege that we are able to vote and have a voice in government. Even just this last midterm elections, when ever, all the pundits were saying, well, it's not, it's not, everything's going to stay the same. Everything did not stay the same. People came out and voted. So go and do not shrink back from that responsibility. Jesus said we ought to respect rightful authority, but that's only half the picture. That's the Caesar side. What about the rest of what he said? Here he shows that we ought to remember our ultimate allegiance. We ought to remember our ultimate allegiance. Jesus says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. Now, Earlier, I talked about craftiness and, and about Genesis 3 and how those things in my mind related. Here's more evidence for why I think Luke and Jesus are pointing us back to Genesis 1, 2, and 3. He says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And he says, bring me a coin. Tell me whose likeness is on it. Now again, that's a, that's a key biblical word. If, if craftiness reminds us of Genesis 3, likeness reminds us of Genesis 1 and 2, where God says, let us make man in our image and in our likeness. So think about what Jesus is saying here. He says, bring me a coin. Who's, whose likeness is on that? Whose inscription is on that? They say, Caesar. Fling, then give it to Caesar. Now, give to God the things that are his. What is inscribed with God's likeness? Us. People. We are inscribed with God's likeness. That means everything that we are, all, everything that makes us us is meant to be given over to God. Everything that we all, in all of life, our mind, our heart, our soul, our strength is to be given over to God in worship. That's what Paul says in Romans 12.1. Present yourselves, present your bodies as a sacrifice, living, holy, and acceptable to God. There is no sphere of life under which God does not say, that is mine. That is mine, because we are stamped with his image and his likeness. Thus, while Jesus called for obedience to Caesar, he outright rejected any notion of worship of Caesar. Instead, we are to worship God and to God alone. So while we are to submit to earthly authority, that submission only goes so far. When the state becomes so corrupt as to try to force believers to act in ways that contradict God, then we refuse to submit. 
Our loyalty is clear when our commitments clash between God and Caesar. And so the the kind of classic example that everyone thinks about in this comes in Acts 5. And Peter and John are out proclaiming the gospel. And the the Jewish leaders, again, don't like that they're talking about Jesus and about how he rose from the dead and he's the the promised Messiah. So they arrest him and they kind of beat him up a little bit and say, don't preach anymore. They can't do anything else. They don't have authority from Rome to do anything else. So they let him go. They've not broken any Roman laws. And so what happens? They go back, they pray with the church. The next day, they're out preaching again. And the same leaders say, hey, we, didn't we just arrest you guys? Didn't we tell you to shut up? And what do they say? We ought to obey God rather than men. If God has told us to declare the gospel and Caesar tells us stop declaring the gospel, we tell Caesar to take a hike. We must obey God rather than man. Now, now does that happen often? Not really. We want to act like it does when we get all up in arms about, 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 about little things, but the reality is that's, that's pretty rare. Okay, Your boss tells you to cheat the books. Okay, that's a clear definition. Don't do it. Right? If they pass a law that says preaching against certain sins is hate speech, if the Bible preached against certain sins, then I'm going to be guilty of hate speech. We, we don't do it. But by and large, that's not where we live. And yet, and yet, we need to have that in our mind as a clear distinction in terms of authority. Caesar has authority, but it's not more than God's authority. God's authority is supreme. And so, frankly, if going back to the idea of Ferguson, if we are not happy with that decision, if we are not happy with the state of things in this country, then then it's appropriate to engage in civil disobedience. It is not appropriate to engage in rioting. Because we are failing to respect the laws of civil authority. We can make our voice heard. We can say what we think about the equality of all peoples in Christ. But there is a limit to how we express that because we are compelled to obey the laws of God even as much as we are the laws of man. More importantly, God is our ultimate authority and and the one in whom we place our ultimate trust because governments will always fail and pass away. Sometimes... Sometimes I imagine, I imagine all the time, most of us have probably never thought about what it would be like if the United States ceased to exist. Have you ever thought about that question? It's an important question because in Augustine's day, St. Augustine, no one had ever considered what it would be like for Rome not to exist. And yet one day, the walls were breached, the barbarian peoples of the north came down, and Rome stopped existing. And all of Rome thought the end of the world had come. And so Augustine writes this book called The City of God to say, Rome is not our city. Rome is not our home. They were used by God to give us peace and security, but we are looking to another city, the new Jerusalem, that heavenly city where Christ will reign forever. That is where our home is. And so just do a little historical study of all the great civilizations and kingdoms and empires of the world. None of them exist anymore. The Romans ruled the world. Where are they now? They're, they're a tiny city in an island shaped like a boot, or a country shaped like a boot. That's it. They, they run nothing anymore. The, the, the country in which they live has a terrible economy. They are weak and powerless. And so we do not put our confidence in any human authority, in any human institution, because they will always fail. Mark Devers rightly says, government is a rightful authority, but it's a temporary authority. And he records, uh, he, he gives to us something that the evangelist John Wesley wrote when he had an opportunity to be with England's king at one time. Here's what Wesley wrote. I was in the robe chamber adjoining the house of lords when the king put on his robes. His brow was much furrowed with age and quite clouded with care. And is this all the world can give even to a king? 
all the grandeur it can afford, a blanket of air mine around his shoulders so heavy and cumbersome he can scarcely move under it, a huge heap of borrowed hair with a few plates of gold and glittering stones upon his head. Alas, what a bauble is human greatness, and even this will not endure. Can you imagine that it would have been a great privilege for Wesley to be in the presence of the king, and yet he has this, this prescient moment where he sees the vanity of human authority. Here's a guy that has run an empire his life, and this is what he gets. Ill-fitting clothes, borrowed hair, a couple trinkets to put on his head, and just much stress and pain and grief for the life. And one day he's going to be in the grave, and it's all going to start over again. Human authority, civil government is passing away. As God's people, then no country should ever be in our minds our lasting home. No Caesar should ever be our true king. Instead, we live as joyful exiles looking forward to that lasting city under the reign of Christ. In him alone should we put our trust because in him alone was the fullness of love displayed through his atoning work on the cross and the fullness of his power displayed through his resurrection from the dead. No leader, no government, no nation will ever provide any lasting salvation. But when we put our faith in Christ, we have the assurance, the promise of lasting salvation. So what proof do we have? The proof is this. That a a nail-scarred man, a man whose hands and feet are pierced, whose brow is poked, and whose side is scarred, a man who was once dead is no longer dead but lives again and lives forever at the right hand of the throne of God, seated in a place of supreme authority, shepherding and caring for his people. And until the day he returns and makes all of his enemies but a footstool under his feet. He has demonstrated his love and his authority, and therefore in Christ and in Christ alone should we put our confidence and our trust. And when we do that, we will not have any problem living as citizens of Caesar because we know fully and finally we are servants of Christ. Father, we are thankful for your son. We are thankful for the wisdom that he displays in this passage and in your word. God, we're thankful that we do not have to put our hope in the passing and fading glory of human government. But Father, in you and in you alone we can trust. One who has always existed, who will exist, whose glory never fades, and whose kingdom shall know no end. Father, even now we pray that we would live with confidence and humility before Christ, our Savior and our King. It's in His name that we pray. Amen.